The biggest rugby tournament of the year is coming to a Green King pub near you. Watch all the unmissable action live as Europe's top six battle it out for glory in the Six Nations tournament. In and out, in and out, for the line! Leave your rivalries at the door and get the team together to watch the Six Nations. Feel the excitement and the buzz of coming together to enjoy matchday food and drink at your nearest Green King sports pub. Scores in the corner! The Six Nations and Green King. 18 plus, drinkaware.co.uk. Hi, it's Alfie here, the presenter of The Ruck. Before we get to this week's episode, I want to tell you about Funding Circle. And to do that, British and Irish Lions, Saracens and England hooker Jamie George is alongside me. How are you, Jamie? All good, mate. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. It's good to have you with us uh, for The Ruck. Now, Funding Circle backs small and medium UK businesses with simple, competitive business finance. And Jamie is a Funding Circle ambassador because, Jamie, not only are you day-to-day a professional athlete, but you're also a business owner as well. Yeah, yeah. I uh, set up a business with a good school friend of mine about six years ago called Carter and George. Um, we're a physio business that effectively tries to deliver the same level of elite care that I get as a professional sportsman to the general public. So the link between physiotherapy and strength and conditioning and rehabilitation, etc. I've been looking for a physio. so I know a good place. I'll get your card after. Funding Circle has supported over 90,000 British businesses with £12 billion in finance since 2010. So, Jamie, simply, how have Funding Circle helped you? Well, obviously, they've got an amazing um, financial product. So um, our most recent venture is, is trying to grow the business as quickly as we can. We've got five clinics now and we're looking to push on. And obviously, we wouldn't have been able to do that without the help of a funding circle and um, the financial support that they were able to give us. So if you're looking to overcome challenges or push your business forward, Funding Circle provides finance that backs you and your business to succeed. Visit FundingCircle.com to find out how Jamie is growing his business backed by Funding Circle. everyone this is the ruck from the times and the sunday times welcome back thanks once again for joining us i'm alfie reynolds and once again another monday morning i am joined in the studio by elgin alderman elgin how are you very well thank you had a, a lovely weekend of rugby and remembrance i was down at gloucester for the defeat by bath on friday night and then Saturday, a bit more grassroots at London Welsh versus Brighton for some uh, pre-match singing and uh, take part in the remembrance ceremony as well, which is very poignant by the memorial at the ground where they remembered the club members that lost their lives in the First World War. So I think we saw a lot of those, a lot of those ceremonies at all the games this weekend, very, very well observed, weren't they? It was, a, it was a very moving weekend. So I have to ask, when you say pre-match singing, is this part of your choir? Elgin is part of a, is it a male, is it a, a Welsh voice choir? It's the the London Welsh Male Voice Choir. It was a it was a mixture of a few choirs. There's the London Welsh Rugby Club Choir, who often sing down there, and they brought in some reinforcements from the London Welsh Male Voice Choir and from Gwalia, one of the other Welsh uh, Welsh choirs in London. So we just did a little bit of singing at the function beforehand, and then a little singing as part of the memorial as well. One of these days, we will get Elgin singing on the ruck. He has been known to sing on other podcasts. We haven't quite got him singing on the ruck yet, but at some point, we will. Also joining us down the line from our Wiltshire studio, Stuart Barnes. How are you, Barnesy? I'm all right, and you will not be getting me singing unless I'm inebriated <laughs> with I wouldn't recommend it. Yeah, well, likewise for me as well. I'll definitely be leaving the singing up to Elgin, I think. Barnsley, we'll get onto it in a more detail when we properly get into the Prem, but you were at yeah. Le- Leicester Quinns this weekend, game of the weekend, arguably, I, I think you'd say. Um, oh, I don't know. I thought okay. uh, Gloucester Bath was fantastic, but I, I, I thought it was a very good game. Um, extremely positive at Welford Road. Uh, I, I saw Ian Tempest, the referee, afterwards, and he just said how easy it is for him to referee when you've got two sides who want to play. I think there there were a few errors, but overall, it was a fascinating game, very positive and extremely enjoyable. Well, we'll get on to the Premiership action. Uh, before that, though, piece in the Sunday Times that you had, Stuart, uh, this week. England A-Games can help unearth the next Martin Johnson. This is in reference to last week. We got the news that England a are back up and running again. They're going to be playing Portugal in February. Roundly speaking, it was something that was met with great regard, I think, amongst the rugby community. I thought it interesting, Stuart, of kind of what you said, the the importance of those matches. Yeah, and I don't think 
England A playing Portugal on its own is enough. It's a good move. But I, I just think with this two-month hiatus of Premiership rugby, there's a great opportunity to reinvigorate the A fixtures. And it works very well because of the link between the Six Nations and Rugby Europe. You know, sometimes you just think bottom level of the Six Nations, teams like Italy could do with putting half test teams out against decent Rugby Europe teams. And that would give the stronger team, in theory, a chance to bring through B players. The same applies to to Wales, which has a, a really good team, but not strength in depth. So I think it works at the top level, helping you bring through players but it also works at the bottom level because, you know, if you look at results, um, Portugal and, and Georgia, when they play the likes of Poland and Germany, that's just as lopsided as it has often been when, I don't like using the phrase, but what was known as the tier one teams play um, the weaker tier two teams. So it, it works for all and sundry. And I think you don't have to have a championship, but there's quite clearly a gap for... Two weekends of internet of Six Nations against Rugby Europe teams, and I think you could also fill in other fixtures there. And I think that's really important. It'll be interesting to see, of course, who lines up for England Day. I'm sure people will have lots of fun coming up with their own exciting teams of people that they'd like to play. But but also we're not certain of what what Portugal team would come out because they'll have to consider their Rugby Europe Championship campaign as well as this the match against England Day. Yeah. They, they may have a game against Ireland. When I spoke to the Portuguese Union president last month about this, he said that they were looking for a game against Ireland's um, second-string team as well as England. At the time of that, yep. I, I raised the prospect. Now, of course, everyone's trying to figure out how to give teams like Portugal more games and obviously people are talking about maybe expanding the Six Nations and currently just because of time and resources there's no perfect answer but I floated the prospect perhaps of in the first instance having a a sort of bridge league between the Six Nations and the Rugby Europe Championship where you brought back the six A teams and you, you put them in sort of two divisions of five two conferences of five with Portugal, Georgia, Romania and Spain perhaps and you had that as a a bridge between the two so you'd have as, as you said, Stuart, you'd have an opportunity for the Six Nations teams to have their second string teams out to, to have some development and also p- potentially give some more forceful games for the likes of Georgia and, and Portugal to, to play possibly now. I'm sure people will have their thoughts on whether or not that's a good idea or a, a bad idea, but I just wonder if that's a good good stepping stone in between possibly. And, and if there are financial concerns among unions in terms of the cost of bringing back A-teams, then maybe you sort of merge that with the, the under-20s, which, which they already have. As we say, these A-teams do often tend to be very developmental anyway, so I don't know if that could play a part in it as well. I don't know what you think about that, Stu. Well, I, there's no doubt at all, you know, Wolfhound stroke Saxon stroke Wales B. It's not about the next best 23 on the block. It's about emerging players who are in the squad and not getting game time. It's about merging um, players who are a little bit nearer the test team but just on the fringe and it's about playing 18 year old whiz kids and see if they can fast track that's very important what I would say is immediately we're looking at Portugal and Georgia and their World Cup heroics but I think if if you have two tiers like that you, you end up you end up forgetting and I know who, there, there will be a sense well who cares but If the game is going to use that awful phrase that I hate, if it is going to grow, you can't just say to Germany, unlucky, and say to Poland and and these teams, they're in that tournament. And I think they've got to stay there. What I I would say is, you know, Portugal can play a couple of A games without worrying about rugby Europe. As long as, you know, there's a couple of weeks, there's two weeks where there's no clash. So they can fit in matches there. And I hear people saying, what about health and safety? But this was my point. Portugal and Georgia against, at the moment, Germany and Poland and Belgium should be playing a large number of of their players coming through. And that would develop their game. Otherwise, you end up with Georgia. uh, and Romania used to be that in my playing days. They had a really strong team. They only played good teams. Uh, when their era of the good teams came to an end, there was nothing left because there'd been um, no development. So I think it's very important that you don't forget 
the nations like Belgium and, and Poland and Germany that we never mention. And as you said, Stuart, and something you referenced in the Sunday Times is we want to see more of the matches at the moment. It's just a one-off that they've scheduled for February, isn't there? But as you've gone into, you feel like there's the potential for a schedule to be worked out where we could see more of it. Uh, Coming up on today's pod, we're going to look back on the Premiership action. We'll also preview the start of the women's Premiership season. I spoke with Jess Hayden a little bit earlier and we're going to name our God or Goddess of the Week. But next up, we'll get into the Premiership review of the weekend. So Premiership hurtling along at a bit of a rate now, post-World Cup, five rounds down in a shortened season. Where do you both feel we are with the Premiership? I look at some of the results that we've had so far this year and I've jotted down just a few of them as an example. Gloucester, who we'll get on to because you were at that game, Elgin, they beat Harlequins in week one, but as we might speak about now, they probably in a position where you're wondering where the progress is. Bristol, who are in a similar position to Gloucester, having lost three of their five games, they beat Northampton in week two. We've seen Leicester beat Bath and Leicester seem to be struggling at the moment as well. Exeter beat Sale 43-0 in week three. And then we saw Northampton put in a great performance and beat Exeter over this weekend. So, yeah, it's kind of funny, isn't it? You start to feel like Sale and Harlequins look like they're going to be there. Saracens, now that they're bringing their World Cup stars back and having lost their opening games, seem to be building again. But there's a lot of sides, once again, underneath those teams that you feel on any given weekend anyone could beat anyone. Uh, and we're, we're still coming, getting a full picture of what the teams look like. We're only obviously, we had three rounds during the World Cup and now we've had two now since the since some of the World, players have been, uh, World Cup players rather have been coming back in and most of them are back now. So you see teams like Bath, who had lost two of their four games, but only lost two of them by a combined margin of seven points, and then they've won three other games with bonus points. So, yes, they're looking good. Harlequins, back to perhaps their form of a few years ago when they, they thrilled everyone. You'd, you'd assume that Leicester would be able to turn this around lying, lying ninth at the moment, uh, having won only one of their first five games so I think we still are developing a picture of just who is doing what but but equally if we have an entire season of everyone beating everyone then that can only be exciting so we'll see how it goes exciting but also very transitional and this is where you get back to that point Eddie Jones used used to make club rugby the, the step up is huge it's what I've just been talking about with with the the difference in preparation select teams as opposed to your club teams And I think what we're seeing at the moment, and I thought we saw it last year and to an extent the year before, is the Premiership actually thinking that it does need to draw new fans. I think there's a willingness for most of the teams to play more attacking rugby. What we saw from Northampton is what we've always seen from Northampton, but Bath with Russell uh, uh, changed. Gloucester are interesting because they're trying to change. And and then when things start to go wrong, they really don't understand how to press the button. But that's what happens when you have transitional rugby. We're going from quite dour English club rugby for a long period to very exciting club rugby. And and the the victim is quality. and, And that's why... Everyone talks about the the wage cap, and of course, the wage cap gives French clubs and 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 the Irish provinces an ex, a, a, an advantage. But there's more to it than that. There's this limbo in which we are at the moment, and it's an exciting limbo. And I think it's very important that you've got to accept that there will be games where defenses look terrible. Gloucester have got, for example, have got to keep their nerve, and they've got to keep playing. Um, I really do believe that. I, I, I don't think the game can be sustained when you've got 10 teams and just saying, we don't care how we play as long as we win. Uh, it's not enough teams. It becomes boring. The rugby has to be exciting. And then the international coaches have got to find this way to merge what is happening at club rugby, which is not international rugby, uh, with the test match game. It was something Jack Clement, the Gloucester back row, said to me last week. I'd asked him what his view was of the World Cup, watching as a player with England ambitions, playing in the Premiership Rugby Cup, in the Premiership, watching the World Cup. And, and, and his main takeaway was just how there were there were different styles on show. You had South Africa with their sort of traditional forward power bomb squad, but equally with a little bit of excitement. Then you had New Zealand throwing it about a bit more. England very much sort of 
pragmatism and kick first and he said that he enjoyed that because he hopes that the premiership can have 10 teams playing in 10 different ways and you don't want everyone playing the same so even among players that you know it's something that they hope will come out of the season as well well should we focus on the Gloucester Bath game a little bit more then it's going to be the manner the way that game changed is what concerns Gloucester isn't it 35 points conceded in that second half the first half Gloucester were superb Santi Carreras who was back playing at fullback where he does for Gloucester. He plays at fly half for Argentina, but watching objectively, I think you can say that he definitely plays his best rugby at fullback. He had he had a hand in just about everything brilliant that Gloucester did. They were running brilliant, crisp backline angles. You had Johnny May having a great time out wide, Ollie Thorley as well, Santi Carreras already mentioned. To go 20-10 up, they, they looked brilliant. They looked set for a, a bonus point win in that game. And then suddenly, yes, to lose 35-7 in the second half, conceding 28 Unanswered points, and after the match, George Skivington seemed, you know, he was white as a ghost. He he didn't quite know what had gone wrong. He didn't really know what to say. He was just completely nonplussed about how they had just completely fallen away from dominating the fixture to not getting any points out of it. And Barnsley, do you feel that going back to something you said just now, that Gloucester need to hold their nerve with how they're almost trying to change their game plan? Is this almost just a product of a team who? were very good at one thing when we saw them have a decent season where they finished fifth and they had that driving mall which no one could stop. They're looking to now be a little bit more of an all-round team, but sometimes when you try and do that, things go wrong, they don't always click. Is, is Would that be your explanation? Or do you think Gloucester fans would be right in feeling a little bit more concerned from what they saw from their team? I wouldn't be concerned about the way they play or the season in general, I would be slightly concerned. I think George Skivington's uh, essence is of a tight driving forward. I think he he wants the team to play as 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 his position dictated in in, in the second row. I know he played for a Was team that played some good rugby, but his default position has been since he's been DOR of Gloucester to tighten it up. It's what he likes to do. He likes the box kicks. He likes a driving more. And I just think he's in alien territory at the moment and and it, it's very interesting what Elgin's saying as well about Carreras because last year um, I was adamant and I, I still am by the way that Carreras has to play fly half there because he's so much more creative than any other option they've got and, and he probably is a better fullback there but if you play him fly half when everything is going well it gives them a back three for example of May, Thorley and Louis Rees-Zamet they can't afford not to play one of those players. And if they've got all of those players on the pitch and they're functioning, then they're going to score a lot of tries. And and Carreras, I don't think he had a great World Cup as a fly half, but at the premiership level, uh, he could still be an outstanding player. You know, what do Gloucester do now? I, I suspect they'll tighten up a little bit in the next game. And I don't think they should. I think they should keep playing. I think the most important thing at the moment in Premiership rugby is how they play, not the final result. Now, it's very easy for me as a journalist to say that. And it's not easy for a coach to say that. But I think, you know, coaches would find willing ears if they're talking to their owners and saying, we need to be part of something that is really elevated that is really lifted from where it's been for a long time because like I said I think a 10-team league with the same old faces is going to bore everyone rigid unless something changes and I do see change at the moment. And also what won't bore people rigid at the moment is Finn Russell. We can't mention this game without mentioning him. Elgin shushing the shed already has got himself into the hearts of the Bath fans. You feel don't you that I know we're only five games into the season and he was at the World Cup for a bit, but he came straight back in to, to play for Bath. You, you can kind of see the Finn Russell personality on this Bath team a little bit in terms of how they're playing. Absolutely. It, it, that's the type of incident that, you know, it, it goes around social media. It gets eyeballs on something that happened in the league, not necessarily one of his cute inside passes. And, and the irony of that game was that Bath's best play was in the second half but the two bits of play I remember most from Finn Russell in that game were his two cute inside passes to Max Ajomo which which eventually led to, to points in the first half and I'm sure Stuart loved seeing those t- that taking it to the line and giving it late to, to runners on on either side of you. Certainly, it was a, an excellent early start to that partnership with, with Ajomo and Ollie Lawrence both of whom 
showed up very well with 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 Finn inside them. You know, he's got two big ball carriers outside him that can that can offer him that that power with his, with his box of tricks. So certainly the the early signs are, are very good. I'm sure Stewart was uh, was was enjoying seeing a, a Bath fly half play like that. Yeah, it, taking the ball to the line is something that so few teams do, and defenses can get a grip because they're in control because they're watching what the playmaker is doing and then they can react with Finn Russell. He gets right up there and he reacts at the last minute. And I I said today, that's one of the reasons why he's not the biggest bloke and he's not the most powerful, but even when he's looking to offload, people can't stop him because he gets defenders in not quite the A position and he's able to get that ball away. And that's linked to his capacity to turn it in or to turn it out because He's only got a millisecond in which to make that decision. Defences have even less time. I have argued about this game. Defence coaches have been dominant and they have controlled the clock. They have been the people who have been saying, we'll force attackers to play under our terms. Fim Russell can turn that around. That's why he's such an exciting player. And that's why there are errors as well. But you've got to live with that because the positives outweigh the negatives. The other thing I think, that's very important. It is a professional game. It is about, you know, I'm not a great man for the online, but it's an important way of trying to develop and bring new support in. And Russell does. Russell is not just a player for Bath. Bath have signed a commodity. And that shush in the shed instance, when he got 1.3 million viewers just on Premiership Rugby online alone, uh, just tells you about the capacity he's got to lighten the load and also to to really um, inspire Bath supporters and rugby fans in general. But Finn Russell, he's doing what he loves to do, which is be a great rugby player and to attract spectators. So, you know, I think he's one of the, the best signings there has been at club rugby in the history of the Premiership. And we better move on to some of the other games, but just finally then on Bath, you talk about the Finn Russell signing, Barnsley. Do you feel... Is he the kind of signing that can get this Bath team playing to their potential? And Because we've always looked at Bath, haven't we? Like on paper, they've always been a squad and some of the names they could field that you expected more from and they've never been able to deliver. Is it too much to put it on Finn's shoulders that all of a sudden that will change? Or, I don't know, just that, that force of personality, the fact that everyone else around him maybe is relaxing because of the style of his play could be something that gets more out of this Bath team? I think uh, with Johan van Graam, a fairly staid South African forwards coach being in charge, Bath needed uh, a bridge between that mentality and what Russell gives them. Now, it might be in some games they need to rein it in, but he's got a wondrous kicking game as well, and he can do that. But I think at the moment, Russell uh, has just uh, pressed the go button. It doesn't matter who you've got in terms of personnel, If you're playing rugby by numbers, as Bath have largely done under Stuart Hooper and in the early years of Van Graam, if individuals won't take responsibilities and are afraid to take risks because it goes outside the system, then you end up with not a pragmatic form of rugby, but a a, a dull and and losing form of rugby. And, you know, what Bath were doing is, is what England have been doing. And that's why... It's very important to have a catalyst. And I think that's the word for Russell. He's a, he's a catalyst, but his personality is such. He'll he'll drag the younger players with him and say, come on, we can have a go. And actually, we mentioned Finn Russell. I thought one of the storylines of the weekend in the Premiership was fly halves generally, because you had both Alex Anderson and Pat Lamb praising George Ford for the way he marshalled Sale around the park at Ashton Gate and Sale winning 27-13 against Bristol. And then the Sunday game, Finn Smith, man of the match, Northampton 34, Exeter 19, young guy who was good from the tee, put a lovely little kick in for Tommy Freeman for the first try. You as well, I suppose, Stuart, were at Leicester Harlequins where you had Marcus Smith, Andre Pollard, that sort of matchup. It was a, I felt like it was a weekend for 10s, really. Good weekend for Thames. George Ford will never play like uh, Finn Russell, but I think if uh, if you want to write a manual of how how to play constructive fly half play, his drop goal and his part his flat pass for Sam James that that's how, that's that's how you marshal a game. Uh, that was Ford far more positive than he than he became with England in in the World Cup. Smith was very good, and so was Pollard. 
Very contrasting fly halves. Smith uh, is the will of the whiz. Pollard is a strong carrier with a poetic pass. He's a beautiful passer of the ball. And Finn Smith was very good. But can I also mention one other uh, non-fly half? Yeah. And it's interesting. I thought Alex Mitchell played really well. And I've given Borthwick and the English management a bit of a booting. But I think their attempt to just slow him down and make him a little bit more conservative... Um, to box a little bit more than he did actually worked. I, I thought the balance of the Northampton game uh, with Mitchell running the show from nine was better. We still had those Mitchell breaks, but we had not more kicks, but better kicks. Uh, and I thought that that made Northampton look like a team who, you know, we always say oh, on their day they can beat anyone, but they can't because their pack hasn't been good enough. But there's a structure to their game now. And there's a pace as well. And Mitchell's right in the middle of the sandwich. And I, I think he's he's turning them into a, a team of contenders. And, and I, I would give the England management some credit for saying, you know, I've said before, you don't want everyone going 150 miles an hour and you don't want people playing at one mile an hour. You've got to find that in-between ground. And, and I thought Mitchell was exploring the in-between very well. You mentioned George Ford there, Stuart. He does seem to be launching a, a one-man campaign to bring the, the drop goal back, something that you knew all about back in your day when it was a bit more bit more of a common tactic. Is it something you'd like to see more of or, or, or are teams aware that it is quite a, a high-risk strategy because it doesn't always pay off because it is such a difficult skill? Oh, Elgin, I don't think it's a high-risk stra- strategy at all. I cannot see how on pitches where it's not the mud of the old days, a drop goal, worth three sixty percent of a try is anything but a sensible thing. It puts different sorts of pressures on defence. I'm a great believer you score tries, but when you get penalties, if they're kickable, you build and you accumulate. And and Ford is doing that. And that's right. I don't think I think a drop I, I don't want to see more drop goals because I think drop goals should be worth fewer points. But while there were three points, then any fly half worth his salt will be taking the opportunity to go build a score. And just to stick on the Northampton-Exeter game for a second, something we mentioned last week, actually, Elgin, but you do feel that Northampton, a big focus for them this year, and one of the big positives, I think, from what we've seen so far this season has been their defence and a bit more forward grunt. As you say, Stuart, we've always known that they've been a team that can score tries. They've lost in Premiership semi-finals because they've lost up front. I think that seems to me to be a real focus of them this year. I also wanted to mention the Niall Armstrong red card for Exeter fairly late on in the game. Northampton were leading 27-12 at the time, so it didn't have a huge impact, I think, or an impact at all on the result. But for those that didn't see it, he went up to catch a high ball He's come back down and the officials have deemed that he was in control. Uh, It wasn't a natural action to put his boot up, which then caught the face of Finn Smith. His studs caught him uh, saying it's reckless and therefore it's a red card. Stuart Hogg, interestingly, on commentary as a former fullback, saying he felt that it was pretty harsh and a natural thing to do. Uh, when I was watching it, I agreed with Stuart Hogg. I didn't think it was as as black and white to say that Armstrong wasn't off balance and that it was an unnatural thing to do, I think. When you are sort of half jumping for a ball, any type, any there can be any small, you know, lack of balance when you're doing that. So I didn't agree with the interpretation that it was categorically an unnatural thing to do, and that maybe a penalty should would have sufficed. Well, we should mention some of the other games we've spoken about. George Ford, just a word on on Sale because played five, won four, lost one. They lost in the final last year, but it seems like they're continuing to, to build on the success that they had. It strikes me that they're in a pretty good position, maybe in contrast to Bristol. Bristol are a fascinating one in a way with all the resources that they have. But you look at their last two seasons. In 2021-22, they finished 10th. Last year, they finished 9th. They won a couple of games to start this year, but have now lost a few. So they've lost three of the five that they've played so far. Barnsley, I feel like it's fair for Bristol fans to question what progress is being made, particularly when you factor in the resources that they have at their disposal. The moment Bristol gave Pat Lamb a a giant, I think it was a five-year contract, was the moment Bristol seemed to lose their way. They don't seem a particularly happy team. They don't seem a team who know what they're trying to do at the moment. It, it's a it's a horrible collapse because Bristol are one of the big city 
rugby clubs in the Premiership, and I think it's it's important that Bristol are strong. But they 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 really are adrift at the moment. I mean, apart from a couple of lovely Callum Shiddy cross kicks, I haven't seen much to impress me. I, I think Pat Lamb is is struggling at the moment to work out exactly what to do. Other other teams, of course are playing some quite progressive rugby as well. Now, when Bristol came up, they were almost on their own in, in, in playing this dashing, running rugby. Maybe we watched a few years ago. Others are doing it now. And it seems to me that other teams, when they play with a bit of pace, Bristol find it quite hard to live with it. They seem uh, defensively naive. They seem a little bit confused what they're trying to do at, at, at scrum half. I, I tend not to look at results in the first five, six weeks. And I know it's different when there's only 18 games before playoffs, but I try and see how teams are playing. I'm liking Northampton a lot for the progress they're making. And I'm disliking Bristol quite a lot for the regression in their game. I, I, if I was a fan of any club, I would be pleased to be Northampton and I would be worried to be Bristol. Mm. It's interesting. I've seen quite a few fans for Bristol mention as well that they've felt the atmosphere at Ashton Gate feels flatter this year. Previously, the last two years, even though they weren't performing too well, I think it, it was still pretty good. But maybe the fans are getting a little concerned or tired with what they've seen. Well, Ashton Gate's a big ground, isn't it? Yeah. This is the problem. If you've got a big ground and your team are playing badly and you don't fill it and it gets a little bit flat... It gets harder and harder. One of the few strengths of my old club, Bath, is no matter what problems they had for a, a long period, because their ground is is quite a lot smaller than Ashton Gate, they'd always fill it up. And it didn't mean they'd always win, but it meant that brand Bath sustained itself. People wanted to go there. Visiting fans and Bath fans was an occasion. There's a big danger when you've got a ground like Ashton Gate, if you're struggling and you're getting half full, and you're not playing attractive rugby, and you're losing, you're going to lose that fan base. Well, the attendances were pretty strong. I need to check them this year, but they were pretty strong even the last couple of years when they weren't performing as well. But it's interesting. Do you want to say a final word on sale? I'm conscious that last week we didn't mention too much either, Elgin. I know we've spoken about George Ford. Again, I just, I'm impressed with sale. I like where they are at the moment, off the back of last season as well. Absolutely. We, we, we've mentioned so many teams thus far, such as Northampton, who can look a million dollars but then just don't have that 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 grunt that forward power that that sort of toughness that's required to to go all the way and and in sale they, they may not be as, as thrillingly exciting as some teams but you do sense that they do just have that that grit that alex that alex anderson has instilled in them with someone like george ford who just knows how to get things done when when the pressure's down so you would expect to, to see them having a, a good season as they did last season Barnsley, as we say, you were at Leicester Harlequins. Uh, we've spoken about the fly halves. When I, came, I I had to re-watch this game because I was at Portsmouth Charlton, as it turned out, actually, on Saturday. It was a return to football for me over the weekend. But So I had to re-watch Leicester Harlequins. And from some of what I'd seen, I was expecting it to be quite negative from Leicester's point of view. I know they've only won one game, but they were right in it, weren't they, for a lot of that game. Cronin had the knock on around 55 minutes close to the line, which was, you feel a really key moment had they been able to cross and, and score there. What, what do you make of Leicester and where they are at the moment? Elgin, earlier you said that you feel like Leicester, you feel should be okay and be able to maybe write some of those performances off that, that they'll be all right. Barnsley, what, do you, what did you make of them? I wouldn't be concerned if I was a, a Leicester fan. They're still solid up front and they are trying to play rugby. And if Pollard's such a class act, if he's fit, he'll get them playing. Quinn's had a really good day and what Quinn's did Unusually, Leicester are very good at dominating that five-metre that five meter channel near the try line This time, as you said, Cronin knocked on one or two little spills there. And Harlequins, when they got five, six metres out, they had a habit. Five, three of their five tries were taken close range. So I was impressed with Harlequins. Uh, I wasn't uh, disappointed with Leicester. I just thought the better team won on the day. The only problem for Leicester is... Um, Home advantage is so important psychologically. And having lost to Harlequins, they've got to get back on the bike now because Northampton will come quite confident at the moment. And if, if Leicester lose next week and they're one for six, then they've given up a lot of ground. But I, I do think that they are at their best 
one of the best teams in England, but they've just got they've got to get those wins quickly. And, and very briefly on sale, we've talked about them not being flash and how they can grind out results. I'd also say in their credit, they're, they're, they're getting some very good local talent. Yeah. You think of the likes of Roebuck and Carpenter. Um, there's some good young backs coming through. And whilst at the moment the essence of, of, of sale is control and forward power, they are developing all the time a really nice back three. Yeah, Aaron Reid as well, scoring a yeah, lot. Yeah, he's really exciting. A lot of tries. Super speed. Yeah. Finally then, uh, the one game we haven't mentioned, Newcastle against Saracens. Saracens resting more of their England players than we saw the week before as we expected them to do. They went up and got a, a comfortable victory at Kingston Park, 50-12. to 12. I feel like on another episode we should try and delve deeper into Newcastle because we don't have as much time now. But it's always a tricky one, isn't it? We know that they're probably not spending as much as other teams. Traditionally, it's been a tough place to go, but you feel like they aren't using similar resources at the moment. And Saracens, Elgin, having lost their opening two of the season and it raising a few eyebrows, you do kind of feel like they are starting to shift through the gears uh, to get themselves up into that top four. Saracens are always, always going to be there at the, the top of the tail end of the season. We've said so much already uh, on this episode about how you can't read too much into everything thus far because we've had those three first weeks and now the the post-World Cup weeks. But no matter how early in the season is, when you lose five games and ship 50 at home and lose by 38 points, there's there's no real way of, of sugarcoating that. So it, it isn't looking good for, for Newcastle. As you mentioned, there are so many off-the-field things that, that play into that. But but on the field, it, it's not looking positive. And, and well, hopefully, you, over the course of the season, they will be able to muster some wins, and those are m- most likely to come on a you know sort of Friday night at Kingston Park down the road. So, um, yeah, it's, it's not looking good thus far, anyway. When I talked about what's good and what's bad, um, I didn't mention Newcastle because they're taking such pastings at the moment. You, you think the kindest thing is to try and forget them. It worries me because we want uh, a presence in the Northeast. Sale have one in the Northwest where it's really hard to succeed because of the, the power of football and rugby league in, in Manchester. Newcastle at the moment should be taking all of Yorkshire and, and, and the Northeast right up to the border. And it it's not happening. And it, it it's extremely worrying and I think at some stage we have to get back to a, a serious sort of promotion relegation situation and and you don't want Newcastle at once being a team going down because whilst the Premiership is about the clubs and hopefully it'll be not just Premiership clubs, I hope it'll be uh, a pro de as we call them in France, I hope there'll be more than that. But this is a reminder that the RFU has to stay involved in the club game because it can't afford to lose sort of 25% chunks of the land just because it doesn't have the finance or it can't can't get the players. It worries me a great deal, both on the field and off the field. Newcastle have done some outstanding things in the last few years without getting anywhere in the league because they played very young players. They've developed quite a few England squad players, but it's bloody hard. There's there's only nine opponents now, and you know every one of those games is tough for Newcastle, and they can't keep taking 40, 50-point defeats because that will demoralise young players. Uh, and if Newcastle become a team that starts signing old lags just to sort of shore up things, then what's the point? Yeah, well, we'll park the Premiership chat there for now. Next week in the Premiership, it's the Derby round. So every fixture is a Derby. They all kind of make sense, don't they? Apart from the Sale Newcastle one, the old the old traditional Northern Derby that I think they're probably trying to manufacture a little bit. But we'll be speaking about that on next week's episode. Up next on this week's episode, uh, I caught up with our very own Jess Hayden to preview the start of the domestic game in the women's side. 
Six Nations and six amazing chances to win an unforgettable adventure for you and five mates in a Six Nations European host city of your choice. To take part, enter online now at greenking.co.uk slash rugby. Six Nations, six mates and six international rugby getaways worth £3,000. Scrum down and sign up to win at greenking.co.uk slash rugby and watch all the Six Nations action live at your local Green King pub. Terms and conditions apply 18 plus drinkaware.co.uk. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. The Ruck Podcast is proud to be sponsored by Funding Circle and Saracens, British and Irish Lions and England hooker Jamie George is with me to explain how Funding Circle are supporting small and medium-sized UK businesses because Jamie, you, as well as being a rugby player, are also a small business owner. Yeah, I own a business with uh, a good school friend of mine, Reese Carter. It's called Carter and George. We're a physiotherapy business. Uh, we've been up and running for about six years now and sort of our strap line is delivering the same level of care I get as a professional sportsman to the general public. If you're looking to improve different parts of your business or hire talent with extra know-how, Funding Circle provides finance that backs you and your business to succeed. Jamie, you want to do the sign-off for us? Absolutely. Funding Circle, business finance that backs you. Visit FundingCircle.com to find out how I'm growing my business backed by Funding Circle. Jess, how are you? I'm well. I'm, I mean, I'm excited to be back. It's been a long time since I've been here because of the, the Men's Rugby World Cup obviously mm. taking the headlines. But you've been keeping busy, haven't you? I've well been trying to, been trying to. Will, Alex and Steve would probably say that maybe not. They saw me more out in France. But you're right, it has been ages, I feel like, since we've yeah. spoken to you. And it is actually one of the things that myself, Alan Dimmock and Elgin spoke about on last week's podcast because mm. we can mention it first the WXV which has finished England the champions great result for them but it was almost a competition that perhaps in terms of the scheduling it got a little bit lost amongst the Men's World Cup is that fair? That's absolutely fair and I mean especially for England they'll be feeling that because their new head coach John Mitchell couldn't join them until Japan were knocked out of the, the Men's World Cup so it was a bit of a strange place to put it in the calendar but it had to be there so that the domestic season can get started now but I think in terms of the fan base obviously if a match is kicking off at 6am or 7am in UK time you're not going to get a huge number of people watching it and I was really disappointed with the crowd sizes in New Zealand and another journalist who works out in New Zealand was saying that there was no marketing around it. And if you went to the World Cup that was also in New Zealand, you didn't then get an email to say, you loved, you were there last time, why don't you come along to this tournament as well? So I think there was definitely missed opportunities there in terms of building an audience. But in, in terms of the rugby, I think it was it was a really good tournament. It was interesting looking at the results. So I know England winners and generally when it comes to international rugby, England always expected to win or be there or thereabouts. But New Zealand, France are some of the other teams that you'd expected to be up there not performing quite as well. Yeah, that's absolutely true. And I think France are in a really important transition phase now where um, some of their star players have retired and they're trying to kind of test out new blood and, and, and find their form again. New Zealand, they do tend to have massive dips in form after World Cups. And I mean, before the 21 World Cup, which was played in 2022, they lost on record-breaking losses on consecutive weekends against England the year before in the autumn. And then obviously they beat them in the final when it mattered. They do tend to build towards those, those big campaigns like a World Cup. If I was England, I wouldn't be feeling calm about that because they, they know what they're playing towards and, and it's no promise that they won't be winning in 2025. England know what's coming, don't they, later at that World <laughs> yeah, Cup? They yeah, they do. I suppose as well with New Zealand, linking it back to the point you made about the fan base and the fans out there, again, with the New Zealand public, it's maybe harder for them to engage with it if they know that it's a team that drop off a World Cup and then build again towards it, possibly, yeah, maybe. Yeah, that's a really know. good point. Yeah, it could well be that as well. Okay, well, let's move on to the the domestic game in England. 
Premiership Women's Rugby. It's had another rebrand. I feel like the name changes every year, doesn't it? I know, I know. It, it's really frustrating to keep up with all the different name changes and all the different teams and the teams that we've lost and the teams that we've gained. There's been a, a lot of change, but I can't get my head around that it's PWR, Premiership Women's Rugby, and so we're calling it Power. And then because there's the, the Power Cup and the Power League, we're saying Power League. And to me, Power League is the place where you play five-a-side. I don't, that's so true. I was, I was thinking in my brain, I was like, Power League. That, I've heard that someone yeah. before. Is it darts? Is it something else? Yeah, it's five-a-side. Yeah, you play five-a-side at Power League. I mean, my twin brother goes there all the time. So when I've been saying Power League, I'm like, no, this isn't a five-a-side down the you know, down Power League. It's actually <laughs> the, the highest level, the highest domestic league in the world for women's rugby. It's a bit of a weird one, but I quite like the power connotations. I suppose it seems a little long-winded even you having to try and explain it there but we'll see if it catches on anyway premiership women's rugby i think is what i'm going to go for therefore yeah. we know where we stand and despite maybe some of the marketing issues that we've just run into with the name and how people are referring to it massive massive news ahead of the new season in terms of the broadcast deal that's right so they've signed a multi-year deal with tnt sports which is also rebranded from bt sports so maybe that's how they bonded um <laughs> to show one match per round um that's across their tv and digital platforms and they'll also show both semi-finals and the final which uh, will be on june 22nd next year the important part of the deal for me is that clubs can also broadcast their home matches if TNT aren't showing them. So that that's good because I, I was thinking if you're only seeing one game per round, that if you're a Trailfinders fan or a Loughborough Lightning fan or basically one that's not really competing for the top four this season, you're unlikely to have your game shown on TNT. So, so it would be quite difficult, I think, to follow every team I don't think it's going to encourage more people to go and watch the matches. I, I hope it does. I hope I'm wrong and actually the gate figures this season are brilliant because of this. I do wish it was on free-to-air. I know that's what the Premiership Women's Rugby wanted as well and the deal didn't come. And I think TNT is a good option because you already have a very engaged rugby audience who have TNT because they follow the Premiership and I think Champions, Champions Cup, Champions and, Cup yeah. and whatever else that they have on on there. Yeah. So it's it, it that's good, but I would hope it would be on free to air. And I believe that there's part of the deal allows for um, there to be more conversations in the future about whether the semi-final and the final is also on free to air as, as well as TNT. Okay, interesting. That's so... I'm fascinated you said that because my instinct when when this all got announced and you see it, over social media and the press release and everything about how this is such a, a brilliant moment for the women's game and there's no doubt the investment in it as you say having a one game guaranteed every weekend on a TV channel that mm. you can actually find because maybe when it was on iPlayer it was a bit of an issue people yeah. being able to find it but I still just I wondered whether the game was at the point where it that was more beneficial than simply having it available to everyone on free to air and my worry was perhaps and I was going to ask you was any concern on the fact that it is behind a paywall yeah I do have concern about that because as you say anyone has been able to watch it you might have to log into the Premier 15's website as it was or you might have to find it on iPlayer which wasn't always easy but it was free and you could do it and it was accessible and sometimes the games were on YouTube and mm. that was really good I think for growing the audience and it's a really good product i I present some of the matches on the Premiership Women's Rugby and I have the best time because it's the it's an amazing atmosphere. The rugby's brilliant and it's more it's interesting rugby. You know, if you're just watching the internationals and you don't really get a team that's cohesive all the time, do you? But at club level it's a it's a growing competition and the the highest level of domestic rugby women's rugby in the world. So um it is worth tuning into and uh, yeah, the season starts this Saturday. Well, let's get on to the domestic season, the new season this weekend then. Bristol against Sale Sharks kick things off at 12.30 on Saturday. Then at 2.30 at Saracens, Loughborough Lightning. And then Ealing Trailfinders against Harlequins at 3. And then the Sunday game, Leicester Tigers against Exeter Chiefs. Gloucester Hartbury get a bye week. They have the awkward, uneven number of teams, mm. of course, because... Worcester Warriors women recently declared that they wouldn't be able to take part in the league. Yeah, and that was a really disappointing decision, I have to say, because the transfer window had, had, was done. You know, everyone had had their transfers. Worcester believed, the players believed that they'd be playing this season. And then a couple of weeks before it starts, the Worcester owners suddenly realise that they cannot fund the, the team for the following year. And you just think, like, where was the planning? Where was the research? What, what, how how has this decision come now? It's the worst possible time for all the players. It's it's a really really bad business in my opinion, um, but it has also meant it does mean that the 
the league is a bit lopsided. We only have nine teams, and there's there's huge changes this this year because Worcester have gone, so have DMP Sharks and Wasps, obviously suffering the same collapse that the men's team did there. But we we're gaining Trailfinders women who are mm. Ealing Trailfinders, but they're going by Trailfinders women and Leicester Tigers, which is exciting. We don't know if they're going to follow the same kind of playing style as the men, but if they do, it would be brilliant for. Um, for the audiences but yeah it's really exciting new season fresh blood in the league and lots of um exciting international transfers in uh, like Beatrice Rigoni who's um joining Sale Sharks that's amazing she's an Italian player who is electric on the field and also lots of really interesting signings between teams it just means mm. that this this season is going to be so interesting I was going to mention that because many people know they can go and watch the women's premiership rugby and I had to check the name there see for a minute I was going to say Premier 15s, whatever, but they know that they can watch the Red Roses in the league. But actually, there's loads of other internationals as well, isn't there? When I was looking through it, a lot of the American team play. You've obviously got Ireland, Welsh, Scottish contingent yeah. as well. There's a lot of quality spread throughout the league. Oh, there really is. And I, it's interesting with Wales that almost every player, I think there's only one player who's contracted with Wales who doesn't play in the Premiership Women's Rugby. Um, a little bit awkward now with the Worcester going down because they had lots of Wales players they're kind of moving around trying to find their places now but you're right there's so much international talent and that just shows how this league is absolutely the best in the world Mm, okay Uh, what i thought we could do jess is i'll let's run through each team and i'm going to say a tiny synopsis from my point of view very very brief and then you as the expert i thought could (laughs) expand upon it does that work for you yeah should give it a go yeah fine so i was going to start off with bristol bears Mm -hmm. semi-finalists the last few years is it now the challenge for Dave Ward and that team for them to go the step further to get to the final? I think they've got to. That has to be their ambition this season. They've, they've lost uh, semi-finals in the last two seasons. And it's, it's a really good team. And the, the interesting thing about Bristol is they have the best resources in the league in terms of their facilities. They're very much a one-club mentality place. The facilities, the gym, everything is incredible. They get nutritionist support. Um, and very much, it's almost like an international setup at club level. So lots of the players who are at Bristol who go to England tell me that Bristol camp is better than England camp so they have a lot of support Dave Ward is a brilliant coach he's so good he picks up I mean his front row he he has like a a world-class front row and I think that's going to be a really interesting thing this season is seeing how the pack comes together interesting so Exeter losing finalists the last two years Mm. again I suppose similar questions what I just asked on Bristol but the challenge for them now is to win it all they have to. That has to be their ambition, doesn't it? Because you can't get into the final. And, nowhere else to go, is it? Yeah, there is nowhere else to go. And Susie Appleby is so, um, she's she's so ambitious. And a fellow journalist, Matt Merritt, called X of the Bridesmaids of the Premier 15s or now the Premiership Women's Rugby because they get there, but they don't quite win it. And they really need to step up. They've had two excellent seasons um, in, you know, the last two seasons. They've, they've performed so well. They, I think that, it's it's important to say that that, that loss of um, Kate Zachary is really important because she pulled together that team so well, but they still have some really good players there. And as I said, it's still kind of the hub for international talent. So I'd like to see them really push for that top four. And, and you know, they have to win the final if that's that has to be their ambition. On to Harlequins aside, who've dropped off maybe from their previous heights. They used to always be mm. right up there, but recently that hasn't been the case. Yeah, you're right. I would agree that I think they've fallen away in the last two seasons. And part of that for me was losing Karen Finlay, who was their head coach, who um, the most phenomenal woman. She's also like one of the most senior women in the Met Police, but also was coaching um, Harlequin's women. Amazing coach. And I think that that's been a real loss. And since Karen, Karen left, I think there has been a drop off in performance. So I, I actually think this could be their worst season. Yeah, I have to say it. I, I, I can't see them being anywhere close to the top four. It's going to be a tough one for them. What about Gloucester Hartbury then? As we say, they've got a bye on the opening week, but defending champions, they got the quality to go back to back. Gloucester Hartbury is easily the most fun team to watch. <laughs> Sean Lynn, their head coach, is just hilarious he's just he loves he loves rugby but he loves fun and family more and the atmosphere that he's built at Grosser Hartbury is incredible it's so fun relaxed and they just take every game as it comes and I think Mo Hunt who's co-captain there epitomizes that team's philosophy which is 
have fun with it, work really hard, put all the effort in, but have a smile on your face while you're doing it. And they just stormed past everyone really at the uh, in last season, and it was phenomenal to watch. So their back line is incredible and so talented. And yeah, you could take your pick of of who to watch, but of course. Um, Mo Hunt is uh, is the one that every, everyone's That's the favorite. name everyone knows. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Uh, let's rattle through the other teams. Leicester Tigers, really interesting. So they won the championship last season. They've come up into the top division. I yeah. guess th- the question is, is it, can they step up? Is it about consolidation and getting themselves a, a part of that top division? It's interesting. It's almost like there's a pathway, isn't there? You know? <laughs> yeah, who would have thought? <laughs> when do we see that? Um, so Vicky McQueen is the head coach at Leicester Tigers and you're, they, they do have um, a very strong core group who've, who've worked together before in the championship. Um, they've they've brought in a, a, a couple of people. I'd say Emi Cocaine is, is the biggest name there. I don't know if this is their season yet. I think they're going to need to make some more signings, make sure that they've got the right investment and facilities, etc. When you're a new team and you're doing that huge step up from Championship 1 to the, the Premiership, that that's going to be difficult. So I'll give them a couple of years to bed in. I haven't seen anything that I'm super impressed by in terms of their signing, whereas with Trailfinders, they've made big enough signings where I think they have a, a really good chance. Well, I'll tell you what, let's get on to Trailfinders yeah. then, because they are fascinating. Abby Dow, I think, was the first player they announced as signing. What a signing that is. Giselle Mather, uh, head coach. I mean, there's a yeah. lot of quality in within that setup, isn't there? Yeah, I am so excited to watch them this season because, as you say, Giselle Mather, um, former Red Rose, for those who don't know, she was also one of the first women to get um, the top level of coaching qualification in, in the UK. Um, she She's coached the likes of Anthony Watson at um, London Irish and she's an incredible coach and she's she's now, um, she's she's been the women's game for a, a long time in obviously Red Rose. She coached Wasp and, and her talent is finding players like Maud Muir, um, who's a Red Rose front rower, and making them the absolute best version of themselves. And, and Maud is the most versatile player. And she um, credits that to Giselle because Giselle made her play in the second row so that she could get some of those skills that she would need to be a more all-round player. Um I think she was robbed of the England job. I, I I don't know if she applied, but I would really hope that um, we see I think, her. I think Steve was very hot on Giselle. I believe I'm correct in saying that Steve was backing Giselle for the Red Rose job. Yeah, I was backing her too. I really wanted her to get it. Um, I mean, obviously, because she just signed at Trailfinders, I don't know if that was her ambition, but um, I, I I hope that we see her one day in that in that um, hot seat. I just, I just think, yeah, it's going to be a, a huge season for them, and and genuinely, maybe not top four in their first season, but I wouldn't put it past them. Giselle knows what she's doing; she knows this league. It seems like she's the per- perfect person to be in place for all the challenges they'll face, but also it is about how can they bring it all together with so many new players and in the yeah. in, a le- in the league, etc. But it's going to be fascinating to watch. Loughborough Lightning—they're an interesting one, aren't they? The two sides that finished below them in the league last year are no longer a part of it, so kind of where are they and what's their aspiration they're another one like harlequins who were maybe a few seasons ago going for the top four finishing top four but now um they the 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 form has fallen away a bit and they're they're obviously they've lost sarah hunter emily scarrett's been out with injury as well so that their star power is kind of not there at the moment i would predict they'll finish bottom this this season okay interesting final two teams then sale sharks and Saracens, contrasting teams there as well, aren't they? I suppose from a Saracens point of view, it's interesting because they have been the dominant force in the women's game, but they didn't make the final last year. So for yeah. them, is it kind of about reasserting their dominance? And then from a sale point of view, they've been slowly trying to build, haven't they? But they're still towards the, the bottom end of the table. Yeah, they are quite opposite. I would say with Saracens, they, they're they always the team with a chip on their shoulder and this season, for the first time, they have an actual fair chance to say they are the underdogs because they haven't done, they didn't do as well as they needed to. They didn't get into the final. It was their first time missing the final. Alex Osterbury, the head coach there, um, is a very fierce character. And I think he demands excellence and the environment is so intense and the pressure's there. I don't know how great that's working um, mm. because I think it's that, a fine balance that kind of yeah, approach, isn't the, it? The temperature is very high in the Saracens women, and um, that can spill over. And I think that for Saracens to really go one further this this season, or would be well, they have to get to the final, and then they would hope to win it as well. I'm sure. I think they need to work on the culture of the team. I think that's really important. But yeah, I think top four. 
Mm-hmm. Sale. Let's see. Sale. Um, yeah, it's a it's a tough one. So they don't. They again, it's a team that doesn't have much funding. They only just stayed in the Premiership by the skin of their teeth. Um, Rachel Taylor, who's a former Wales player, she's leading the the charge there. No real huge star talent apart from Beatrix Rigoni, who is like their one star signing, who is fantastic. She's hilarious. She's so funny to watch. She wears sunglasses. Like she looks like like an old Italian football manager. How she turns <laughs> up to all the matches. She's absolutely hilarious. Love her. Huge personality hire, but also she just has a you know tricks up her sleeve um, a plenty and and is always finding the space and, and really playing what's on and I think that if she can unlock the 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 sail sharks uh, backs and that will be really good for them don't know if she's enough on her own <laughs> to, mm. to lift sail out of that bottom half of the league um but I do genuinely think and I'm not just saying this I'm not a PR person at all I'm, I've I've but this is the most exciting season yet new talent new faces different signings people moving around all over the place it's going to be really exciting um so yeah lots to lots to play for best league in the world that's what we said earlier make sure people tune in jess good to see you and you yeah final thing yeah christmas on the way (laughs) what on earth should people be buying what rugby book is out Uh, so this is the only reason I'm back you know Um, I'm joking (laughs) Jess Um, Jess has written a book (laughs) thank you for the the really subtle plug there Um, yeah so I've written a book about the Red Roses it's called the Red Roses after 70,000 words of writing I've run out of creativity for a name Um, so it's just called the Red Roses it's about the the current squad and their failure to win the World Cup in 2022 but looking forward to 2025 as well when they host the World Cup and they obviously want to win it back there's a a bit about the history as well and looking at the, the real the real roots of women's rugby in England um, but it's very much kind of looking behind the scenes tapping into the culture where things have gone really wrong in the culture the Red Roses what needs to improve before 2025 um, and also you know I spoke to every single member of the squad and the coaching setup and the background staff so from, from the nutritionist to the, the kit man everyone was spoken to so um, it's a very well-rounded picture of this high performance environment of the most funded well best funded women's rugby team in the world and um, so yeah really excited it's pre- pre-orders are um, open now on Amazon and it's published on the 7th of March next year oh good on you the Red Roses the Red Roses the Red yeah. Roses make sure it. good to see you Jess appreciate you coming in yeah and you thank you coming up next it's back to Stuart and Elgin we're going to finish this episode by naming our God or Goddess of the Week so great to catch up with Jess finishing the pod off back here with Elgin and Barnsley God or Goddess of the Week I can kick us off here actually this week I was going to nominate Henry Arundel fresh from a World Cup with England which was a mixed bag a heap of tries against Chile other than that a bit of a a fringe player in that squad a hat-trick on debut for Racing 92 I think a lot of England fans will be watching with interest how he gets on over there under the tutelage of Stuart Lancaster so Henry Arundel gets my nod It's interesting to look over in France to see how the England players are doing obviously Arundel will take all the the, the headlines for that hat-trick, but you had Zach Henry scoring 21 points for Stade Francais at fly half. He was one of the three players, along with Arundel, nominated online for Player of the Week. you got Joe Simmons, Poe at fly half. He, he kicked a few points in their victory, and Sam Simmons down to Montpellier. Montpellier lost, but he scored a try from number eight, and obviously he's, he's filling the, 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 the footsteps of... Zach Mercer, who obviously did so well at Montpellier at number eight. So it'll be interesting keeping keeping tabs on those high-profile England players that are out in France this season. Yeah, absolutely. Elgin, God or Goddess? For me, I'm, I'm looking over to France again. I'm looking over to Alain Estev, who, who, who died this week. He's in his 70s. He was... It, it, the 1970s rugby was completely wild west and all, all sorts of skullduggery went on and in the France and the great Bézier team of the 70s Estev was the enforcer non pare he was more than two metres tall you know, he, he would have looked massive now let alone in the 70s and he's got a of such an interesting backstory he came from he had such a troubled background and I think that probably informed some of his uh, enforcer ways on the field as part of this mighty Bézier team and obviously it was sad to see that uh, that he died this week and I've got a lot of a lot of love for the, the French players of yesteryear and especially that great Bézier team having been to the grounds to watch ga- watch games
games in recent years. Obviously, they're not the the, the great team they were back then. But uh, I'm going for a stir just to, for for the memories of that that uh, long 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 ago era of the 70s in French rugby. Okay, like it. I don't think anyone would have been predicting that one. That might be the most Elgin Olderman choice for God of the Week ever. I quite like the selection. Barnsley, what, what direction are you heading in? Can I have a little devil as well? Of course. My devil is my devil is Finn Russell for that shushing of the shed. All in great spirit, good for the game, uh, good for Bath, and the shed love it. Shed love they shed love a villain too. So all round, he's my devil of the week, my god of the week. I've got to go with you. I spent two months scratching my head, thinking, "Come on, England, do something to be positive." And Arundel, when they did pick him, he got five tries against Chile. He didn't get a pass in fifty-five minutes. I know that he's got a hunt for the ball himself. But quite clearly, England didn't have a clue how to make him comfortable. On his debut against Toulon, of all teams, he gets a hat-trick. One of them is a cracking finish. Um, two of them are superbly taken, reasonable range tries. Henry Arundel has to be the god of the week. And the England management should be on their knees um, begging forgiveness for not using him. <laughs> well, that'll be a conversation that I know we will be having later on down the line when it comes to Six Nations squads and whatnot. Uh, Barnsley, appreciate your time. Great to have you on. It's my pleasure, Alfie. Thank you. And likewise, Elgin, good to see you again. Thank you for having me. Thanks very much for listening. This has been The Ruck from The Times and The Sunday Times. Make sure you follow and subscribe wherever you get your podcast from. And also, if you've enjoyed it enough, then leave us a review as well. We'd massively appreciate that one. But we will be back next week. Thanks for listening to The Ruck podcast. We're delighted to be teaming up with Funding Circle. And Funding Circle ambassador Jamie George is with me. All right, Jamie? Hello. Hello. How are you? All good. Good, good. So away from Saracens and England duty, you are a business owner and Funding Circle is a huge supporter of small and medium sized UK businesses. How have they helped you? Yeah, so uh, I've got a business with a friend of mine. It's a physiotherapy business, effectively delivering the same level of care I get as a professional sportsman to the general public. And we've been looking to expand and grow the business as quickly as we can. And with the financial products that Funding Circle have done, we wouldn't have been able to do it without them. So Funding Circle has been supporting small businesses with access to the finance they need to grow since 2010. And they know that like rugby, running a business takes hard work, drive and a good team supporting you. If you want to invest in your business and take your team to the next level, Funding Circle provides finance that backs you and your business to succeed. Visit FundingCircle.com to find out how Jamie is growing his business backed by Funding Circle. Jamie, can you do the honours? Funding Circle. Business finance that backs you. Six nations and six amazing chances to win an unforgettable adventure for you and five mates in a Six Nations European host city of your choice. To take part, enter online now at greenking.co.uk slash rugby. Six nations, six mates and six international rugby getaways worth £3,000. Scrum down and sign up to win at greenking.co.uk slash rugby and watch all the Six Nations action live at your local Green King pub. Terms and conditions apply. 18 plus drinkaware.co.uk Okay.